Good morning, everybody. I wrote a friend of mine uh, saying, I told him, I said, I'm looking for a story to introduce Mark chapter 12. So I've got to, I got to teach Mark chapter 12. It's a passage that's full of pitfalls. The Jewish leaders are setting all these, these snares for Jesus. And I, I added that the passage is an inclusio. I'll explain what that means in a moment. And I reminded him the big enveloping idea, the enveloping idea of Mark 12 is that Jesus is he's God the Son, uh, born into humanity. I said, I need a story that will fit that. Here's what he wrote back. Fairly quickly, he wrote back with this. He said, here you go. I always felt like a man trapped, enveloped in a woman's body, but then I was born. <laughs> I, I wrote back and told him that was the lamest joke ever, but it did actually fit the parameters of what I requested. He immediately replied, oh, I left out part of the story. Here's the rest. In my defense, I was young then and stuck in a womb without a view. At that point, I begged him to stop, and he said he would if I promised to use his joke in a sermon. <laughs> there you have it. Um, however, despite his warped sense of humor, that goofiness actually does get to the point. Jesus is God the Son born into humanity. So let's get to the real story. Open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Mark, second book in your New Testament. The book of Mark, uh, go to chapter 12, and let's read verses 1 through 12. He began to speak to them, and them here means the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmer to collect some of the fruit of the vine from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? A quote here from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. The tenant parable is what this is called. It shows that Jesus is the Lord God the Son. By the way, that's the first headline. As you study along in your notes, uh, you should be able to get them from your host or online. You've got a bulletin if you're here in the auditorium. Open it up. You'll see the tenant parable shows Jesus is the Lord God the Son. Now, Mark records these events using a device that was very popular in first century Latin circles and inclusio. As an educated Roman citizen, Mark was naturally familiar with this form. Look up here at the, at the slide. You can see what an inclusio is like. It takes an idea. Usually the first idea is in the form of a story, and it sets that idea up as a, as a bulwark of, of a thought section. It's rather like a bookend holding up the volumes on a shelf. And then another bookend is added, which, which emphasizes the same big idea. In the middle are all the little books, all the stories and sayings and reactions between the bookends. And each of those stories emphasizes, sometimes subtly, but they emphasize that same big idea. It's all part of the inclusio. The big idea in this first bookend is that Jesus is God. 
He is the Lord of all. Thus, Jesus is the true focus of everything. Everything is focused on Christ. He is the son of the vineyard owner. Now, the Jerusalem leaders probably started smiling when Jesus began this parable because it starts out just like a well-known image that was first used in Isaiah chapter 5. Here it is, Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing about the one I love. A song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, which in Israel takes a lot of work, cleared it of stones, planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it. You would, you would have towers almost always in vineyards to look out for animals that would destroy or sometimes bandits that would steal. Um, he even dug a wine press out there. The reason it says even is that's a lot of work. You would dig down into the limestone um, and you would make a, a, a basin in which you could stomp the grapes and then you would always have a channel. You'd do it where it was going downhill and you would have a channel, a narrow channel that would go to a deeper reception area and that's where the, the grape juice would go and all the, the pits and stuff would stay up here. That's a lot of work. He even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. That's where their thoughts are going, surely, to Isaiah chapter 5. They expect to be told that they're not working hard enough, that they're not being fruitful in Jesus' eyes. But that's not what Jesus says. He deepens the story. His point isn't that they're unfruitful. The problem is they reject the landlord. Jan Lucan captured the idea really nicely. This is an illustration he did for the Sailor's Bible in 1714. They, they're killing the landlord's son. Randall Satchel, one of our elders, made a great observation. I liked it so much when he wrote me. I put it in your notes. Take a look at at what Randall said. He said, Wayne, they, these Jewish religious leaders, were probably lulled into a false sense of familiarity and and curiosity. Then Jesus added some caretakers to the well-known tale. As was likely obvious to all listening, this new addition was a reference to the Jewish leaders. And the treatment of the messengers by those caretakers, and finally the murder of the owner's son, that could not have been more overt or more stinging to those very leaders who were already beginning to plot Jesus' death. They no doubt clearly understood whom Jesus was claiming to be through this parable, close quote. Jesus claims to be God the Son. That's why he continues to quote from Psalm 118, just like the people did the day before when he rode into Jerusalem. Jesus is making perfectly clear what the real arc of history will be. God the Son will be the foundation, the dugout foundation for those who trust him. Those who reject him, they get, they get cut off from the owner. They get cut off from the real landlord of all. Far from getting an inheritance, they lose everything. By the way, This passage that we just read inspired C.S. Lewis's first book that he wrote after he became a Christian. After he he turned to Christ, C.S. Lewis, the first book he wrote was called The Pilgrim's Regress. It's an allegory. Um, I really like it. I want to share a little snippet with you. Um, In in the snippet I'm I'm going to read to you, Mr. Enlightenment, Mr. Enlightenment is speaking with John. John's the pilgrim. He's the hero of the story. And Mr. Enlightenment says this, there's absolutely no such thing. I might even say no such entity in existence. There never has been and never will be. The landlord is an invention. Your people in Puritania believe in the landlord because they've not had the benefits of scientific training, close quote. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is going to prove that Mr. Enlightenment is an ignorant fool. 
So let's, let's move in from that. That's the first bookend. Let's move in from that first Inclusio bookend. The middle section is where Mark captures a string of reactions, including two traps and a test. Uh, but, but before we dive in, let me try to answer the question. I, I know you're asking a question in your C.S. Lewis imitation. Um, by the way, we're told that he had a very booming voice, very large, fill-the-room kind of voice. Why try to trap Jesus? Right? Lewis, who grew up in Northern Ireland. Why try to trap Jesus? You're, you're, and that's a good question. Why would you try to trap Jesus? There are a few reasons, and I, and I think they're important to consider. The first one is that when you pull off a trick, it makes you feel smug and superior. Have you noticed that? When you can trap somebody, you really feel like you've done something. Um, for example, it's a big part of chess. Let me show you an example from chess. You don't have to play chess to, to get the smugness in this example. Take a look. The first trap is the legal trap. Starts out with e4, e5, net f3, knight c6. Pretty common, bishop to c4. Pawn d6, solidifying the pawn chain here. Knight to c3, bishop coming down, pinning down the knight, and pawn h3, forcing the bishop back. The bishop really should be capturing here, but if they come back to h5, this is where the legal trap can be deployed, and that is knight takes on e5. Says, yeah, if you want to pin down my knight to the queen, I don't really care, because if you take my queen, that's going to end up in checkmate. No way for black to stop this. Bishop comes here to f7. The king has only one move. This d7 square is protected by the knight. King comes to e7 and then knight to d5. And this is checkmate in a very fun and interesting way. Your opponents are not going to see it coming. Fun and interesting because your opponents don't see it coming. The point is that trapping a person can make you feel superior. Um, there's another important motive that is seen in people. It's seen both people then and now. When you set a trap, and this is particularly true when it's a public snare, when you've embarrassed someone in public, it convinces you, or it can convince you, that you're actually doing this, follow me here, you're doing this poor, you're doing it for the poor fools whom you consider to be inferior to, to you, the people that you have conquered with your superior wit. You actually are convinced yourself that you're, you're helping them. You're getting a thumbs up from your equally insecure friends because your unrighteousness is being passed off as righteousness. Um, I was thinking about this with a friend of mine, Dustin Messer, one of my Anglican priest friends, and, uh, and he sent this quote from Marilyn Robinson. This is from her book, The Givenness of Things, The Givenness of Things. Look at this. Cultural pessimism is always fashionable. And since we're human, there are always grounds for it. It has the negative consequence of depressing the level of aspiration, the sense of the possible. And from time to time, it has the extremely negative consequence of encouraging a kind of somber panic, a collective dream state in which recourse to terrible remedies is inspired by delusions of moral threat. She wrote this a number of years ago. And then she says this, if there's anything in life of any culture or period that gives good grounds for alarm, it is the rise of cultural pessimism, whose major passion Listen now, this is the key point. Its major passion is bitter hostility toward many or most of the people within the very culture the pessimists always feel they are intent on rescuing. Close quote. Those benighted people in flyover country that we have to save for themselves. You, you get the idea, right? 
When we set traps for those with whom we disagree, let's be honest, we're not focusing on those poor, misguided souls. We're not focusing on God, for sure. We are focusing on self. We are protecting our power, excusing our sins, destroying our supposed enemies. That's why these cultural pessimists want to snare Jesus. They want to destroy him. They want to diminish Jesus to get the focus off of him. So they begin with a trap based on taxes. It's a trap about political situations. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is fascinating because those two groups did not get along, to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why, why, are, you, why are you testing me? Bring, bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and description is, it, inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, and I picture him flipping the coin at this point, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. As we say on the right side of, their, of your notes, look there, this is a political snare. Taxes are just the means. The, the idea, catch this now, the idea is to make Jesus out as some kind of radical libertarian who refuses to pay tax or as some kind of big government sycophant who, who defends high Roman taxation. He's either some big government high taxation person or somebody who refuses to pay. Jesus is neither, and so he refuses to play their game. His brilliant answer did more than just duck the question. It brings up a whole new way of thinking. Generations before us were actually much more astute than we are about this. I, I want you to look up here to this little crude illustration I've done. Our forebears in what we call the late dark ages were so struck by Jesus' answer and what this answer means that they came up with some pretty nifty policies based on this. They called it the two kingdoms way of living. They did not deny the reality that humans must live under human government until Jesus returns and establishes his physical kingdom. People have got to dwell under the restrictions of human government for good and for ill. And yet, according to the two kingdom thinking, that human government never has priority, never does it have priority? I think I can fairly summarize our, our forebears' conclusions this way. God commands that the kings of this world are to be obeyed unless they demand that subjects violate Scripture. The, the lasting and most important kingdom is whose, everybody? Who's the last important kingdom? Christ. Until he returns, his church represents that kingdom. Jesus' kingdom should be our focus, and it should inform any interaction we have, all the interaction we have with human kingdoms. And finally, unless they are subsidiary to the heavenly kingdom, earthly kingdoms will inevitably, inevitably become despotic. This is not just unimportant ancient history, folks. This affects your life. In fact, this even affects your life in the, in the earthly kingdom. Your American federal form of government came exactly from the, the American founders' understanding of, of this, that this explains why so many of the early Americans said an unreligious America wouldn't work. My old acquaintance, Dr. Tony Evans, thought all this stuff through, and, and he, he updated it in a really good book called The Kingdom Agenda. Here's what Tony said. Here's his pithy summary. Many in our society want the benefits of freedom without its responsibilities and boundaries. They want God bless America, but not one nation under God. And he goes on to say... That doesn't work. Jesus didn't take the bait. 
He wouldn't respond to any earthly political answer that was divorced from his own kingdom rule. That is really important because it means until he returns, his church will be the balance to and the check on any human government. That is why so many governments throughout history have tried to minimize or eliminate church influence. They don't want any competition. And they absolutely abhor the two kingdoms concept. This is precisely, let let me bring this closer to home. This is precisely what is behind the hilariously misnamed Equality Act that passed the U.S. House in 2019. That law has one purpose. It will achieve only one outcome. The muzzling of anyone who follows any authority higher than the, the U.S. culture of the moment. It's ironic, actually, and really sad, because the people who push for such nonsense, they actually shoot themselves in the foot. This side of Jesus' return, Tony Evans is right, this side of Jesus' return, the only way life can work is according to the two kingdoms. But there are fools today, many, many fools, who operate under the smug assumption that Jesus' two kingdoms' idea is passe. Now, you'll hear this inside the church. Um, inside churches, it's often expressed by moaning that the church is, uh, is out of tune with the world. Now, now you, want to, you want to investigate that because there can be merit there, but, but calls for the church to keep up the world are rarely what they appear. They're, they're not usually a genuine desire that the church continue to influence, that it, it keep taking this never-changing message to an ever-changing people. That's great, but that's not usually what's meant. When you hear the church needs to keep up to date, what that usually means is that the churches of Jesus Christ need to be subservient to the earthly kingdoms of this world. C.S. Lewis addressed this um, in his Pilgrim's Regress. Here's how he dealt with it. Um, To cross the canyon, the canyon is the big goal to get to God's kingdom. To cross the canyon, is it true one has to rely on Mother Kirk, a Scottish word for church, asked John. Remember, John's the hero. Mr. Broad. Now, Mr. Broad is the steward of the earthly kingdom in this story. So he's the steward of the the physical earthly kingdoms. Mr. Broad replied, Ah, Mother Kirk, I'd love and honor her from the bottom of my heart. If I sometimes feel that I must differ from her at present, it's because I honor all the more the things she may yet become. For the moment, there's no denying that she's let herself get a little out of date. Close quote. That is straight out of Jerusalem, folks. Yes, the kingdom of Christ and his church must stay engaged, ever engaged in taking the never-changing message to an ever-changing world. But they do so with a never-changing message from an ultimate king. Anybody who tries to eliminate the two kingdoms is setting a trap. And the religious leaders try another one. Their gambit continues with a trap on the resurrection, and they use leveret marriage as their tool here. Go to verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. But we have all the the guys together here. The whole band is here. We got Herodians, we got Pharisees, we got Sadducees. We're going to have scribes in a minute. Uh, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother, this is from Deuteronomy 25 about leveret marriage, if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection... (laughs) when they rise. Whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? 
Jesus spoke to them, isn't, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. <laughs> That's just awesome. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus is not saying that humans become angels and get their wings when a bell rings. He's just using an illustration of, of, of non-marriage. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read? I really think he might have said it like, can't you read? Haven't you read in the book of Moses, Exodus 3 here, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Stop there. Now, it's fascinating that all three of these political theological groups got together to attack Jesus. Not even the Roman subjugation had brought all these enemies together. And the various factions are so focused on ensnaring Jesus that they leave their ignorant flanks exposed. The very questions they ask show their ignorance of the text that they're supposed to be experts on. The Mosaic Law had a provision called leveret marriage. It was very limited. Listen, it only applied to brothers who were, who were taking a particularly undeveloped piece of property and trying to all live together on it to develop a, a lasting family heritage, a legacy. That's the text the Sadducees find and they extrapolate. Leveret marriage isn't the point. They want Jesus, do you see what they're doing? They want Jesus to admit either that the idea of the resurrection is absurd or that the law, gave, the, the law that God gave Moses is flawed, right? This is a really smarmy trap. This is akin to the, the modern pastor who would slant the Bible to depict that Jesus is, is flawed and sinful. Um, in, in each case, the, the trap setters are so proud of their internal circular logic, they get stunned when their stupid presuppositions are exposed. And yes, I do mean stupid, and I do mean exposed. Jesus flat out excoriates these dudes. You, you can't help but rejoice over Jesus' sarcastic response. The Lord looks at them and he says, um, let, let's just cut to the chase. You don't know what you're talking about, all right? They desire to show how smart they are, how much brighter they were than the so-called Messiah who promised to rise from the dead. <laughs> Instead, they end up embarrassing themselves. Remember the, the Pharisees and, and the other Jewish elites who, are, who were there watching all this, involved in all this, they believe in the scripture. They believe in the resurrection. They didn't get along with these liberal Sadducees. And I imagine they all kind of covered their mouths and smiled when Jesus exposed the Sadducees for fools. When Jesus quotes Exodus 3 to prove that God is the living, is of the living, and thus resurrection is a given, that the shadow power of the Sadducees just evaporates. It just evaporates. Again, the pilgrim's regress deals with this. Early in their journey, John, the, the hero, and Virtue, Virtue is his companion, John and Virtue were accosted by a snooty know-it-all, a guy who called himself Mr. Sensible, right? Mr. Sensible. This is Mr. Sensible. He's a Sadducee. That's exactly who he is. He is very Sadducee. He's a Sadducee. And, and, and he tries to trap them. He tries to ensnare them. By the way, Lewis... It's kind of heavy-handed. He became a better writer later as he went along, but, but he, uh, he actually did a kind of a cute thing. He took a really, really old medieval term for buggy, and in the book, instead of calling Mr. Sensible's thing a buggy or, or a coach, he called it a trap, which is an old name for that kind of, of device. So they, thankfully, our heroes, John and Virtue, they don't listen to Mr. Sensible. They, they move on. Later, after John's conversion to God's kingdom, he and Virtue go back to the place where Mr. Sensible lived. Look at this. 
Virtue glanced to the side of the road to see if there were any trace of Mr. Sensible's house, but there was none. It's just as it was when you passed before, said their guide, but your eyes are altered. You see nothing now but realities. And Mr. Sensible was so close to non-entity, so shadowy even as an appearance, that he's invisible to you. Close quote. And so it always goes for all those falsely sensible liberals who deny the resurrection. They, they fade away and they leave nothing behind. Now, the middle section of this bookshelf has one last part. It's a more sincere test this time, and it's on the greatest commands. Go to verse 28. Verse 28. One of the scribes approached. <clears throat> when he heard them debating and saw Jesus answered them, meaning the Sadducees, Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, and here he quotes the Shema of Israel from Deuteronomy 6, Shema Israel Adonai Elchenu Adonai Echad. Um, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second from Leviticus is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important. And here the guy actually himself refers to Scripture. It's an allusion to Psalm 51. is far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. Up steps a lawyer. That's what the scribes were. They were experts in the Mosaic Code. And this scribe is intrigued at how well Jesus exposed the idiotic presuppositions of the unbiblical Sadducees. So, so he poses a test of his own. And Jesus answers with the great Shema from Deuteronomy and the call of others from Leviticus. Now here's what matters most, Jesus says. Loving the one true God because he loves you. Now when one does so, when one loves God, God always reflects that love to the people around you. If I love God with my all, I will inevitably be drawn to love others because he loves them too. This is incredibly profound. Don't miss this. John, John the disciple, later apostle, was standing right there absorbing all this. He wrote an entire book that is founded in this conversation. In this conversation and others like it, John found an entire book. Read with me. 1 John chapter 4. You join me on the underlined portions of the text. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. We also must love one another. Thank you, thank you. Our attorney responds to this. In fact, he references scripture himself in his agreement with Jesus. Now, I think it's possible this, this, um, this scribe is even wrestling with the greatest mystery of the Old Testament. The greatest mystery of the Old Testament is how God can be one and yet repeatedly throughout the Old Testament speak of himself in distinct persons, in, in three distinct persons. With what appears to be very respectful compassion, Jesus tells the man, you're not far from the kingdom of God. There are two aspects to that statement. 
First, Jesus has clearly claimed to be God the Son. He, his life, his miracles, the prophecies he's fulfilled, they make that obvious. The scribe was almost certainly there and heard the parable that started this whole inclusio, which depicted Jesus as the landlord's son. When Jesus says, you're close to the kingdom of God, he's telling the man, you are literally standing very close to the king himself. You're, I'm right here. Marvin Rosenthal commented nicely on this. He said, this is the sovereign you're close to the supreme judge of the universe. He is above all else in character, importance, excellence, and so much more. Close quote. The second aspect of this claim is a kind of warning. Jesus looks at this guy and he says, hey, if you, if you keep pulling on that thread of logic and, and biblically thinking reason, it will lead you to Christ and his kingdom. More than once I have warned an atheist that if you, keep, if you keep thinking, if you keep looking, you're going to end up with this truth. You're going to end up having to confront the truth that everything is focused on Jesus. Again, this, this is addressed in C.S. Lewis's book. Um, in the book, Father History, Father History is one of the real heroes in the book. Father History warns John. Father History says, to set your feet on this road is to take a path that leads to the landlord. As the landlord's son once said, if the feet have been put right, the hands and the head will come right sooner or later, close quote. Jordan Peterson is probably the most famous philosopher of our time. How many of you have read or heard of Jordan Peterson? Okay, lots and lots. He has heretofore up to this point in his life rejected Christianity. But Dr. Peterson keeps finding himself in conversations with Christians. These are chats that keep forcing Peterson to focus on Jesus. I want to show you a snippet of one such conversation. This occurred on March 1st, 2021. March 1, 2021. Dr. Peterson, uh, he posted this in his blog. Dr. Peterson's in a conversation with a guy named Jonathan Pagot. Jonathan Pagot is a, is a Christian artist. And uh, I can only show you a short clip, but, but watch this part of their conversation. So we talked about the narrative and the objective touching, and so I wanted to touch on that again, is that, like, I, I, I understand C.S. Lewis's argument, and, you know, I'm even inclined from time to time to think, well, I've got the choice between believing two impossible things. I can either believe that in, the world is constituted so that God took on flesh and was crucified and, and, and died and rose three days later, or I can believe that human beings invented this unbelievably preposterous story that stretched into every atom of, of culture. And, and it isn't obvious to me that the second hypothesis is any easier to believe than the first, because the more you investigate the, the manifestations of the story of Christ, the more insanely complicated and far-reaching it becomes. So, All right, we're going to stop there. You are not far from the kingdom of God, Jordan Peterson. All right, let's close. Uh, 35 through 44, the, the last part of the chapter is where Mark wraps up the inclusio. Uh, let's read 35 through 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says, By the Holy Spirit. Another quote from the Psalms here. <clears throat> this one from 110. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. 
David's statement proves that Jesus is the Lord, God, the Son. Jesus again quotes the Psalms. He circles back to the big idea. He is God, the Son, the Lord of the universe. What Jordan Peterson called the complexities of Jesus, those are on display here. He is the son of David. Yes, he's the seed of David, but he's also David's superior as God the Son. When I was a college kid, I was part of a group that was tasked with taking care of our college mascot. And uh, we got calls all the time to go and, and people, famous people would want photo shoots. And the governor of Texas called and wanted his photo taken with the bear cub. So we drove to Austin. And when we arrived at the new location, I had a little moment of panic because I realized I didn't actually know what the newly elected governor looked like. I didn't like him. I hadn't voted for him. Um, and all I saw were a bunch of middle-aged dudes in suits. So uh, they all kind of looked alike. Now, I watched them out of one eye while we were prepping the bear, and I noticed one of them was showing a little bit more authority. And sure enough, that guy sat down in the chair that was marked governor, and then I knew that was the one I needed to take the bear to. That was the one to approach. And by the way, for the record, and this is totally truthful and serious, even though I didn't like that politician and didn't vote for him, I did not provoke the bear to bite him. That just happened sometimes. It's just part of life. It did cause the governor to jump up out of his chair, and the bear jumped up in there. We don't know why this wasn't scripted, but it led to a really delightful photograph that appeared on the cover of the Austin American Statesman of the Dallas Morning News, and so the governor was happy even though he was bleeding. So, when the Lord quotes Psalm 110, he is biting the people who are sitting in his chair. He he sits in the seat marked governor, Lord, God the Son. Now, 38 through 40. He also said in his teaching, beware the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor, banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. The whole inclusio is about Jesus. He's the Lord. People should focus on him, but many won't. And those who focus on self receive judgment. When you draw attention to yourself and your supposed piety, you set yourself up for harsher judgment. Inevitably, this kind of self-righteousness ignores God's words, like, like commands to care for widows, and, and one's relationship with God just becomes an external show. Social media has made this a national pastime. Today, think about what we call justice or social justice. It usually ignores true justice as demanded by Scripture, but boy, it plays out nicely on Facebook where fake piety is all about self and look at my good deeds, right? This is the same nonsense practiced by the scribes. Spirituality is a show. Have you, think, have you thought about why it is that in this modern age, professional actors, people who pretend for a living, have become our go-to sources for spiritual wisdom. Have you thought about that? It's, it's because it's all a show. Who's better at a show than an actor? And unless these people really turn their eyes to Jesus, I, I shudder to think of their coming judgment. Of course, we smugly sit back and, and we think in our internal Jordan Peterson imitation, well, thank goodness Christians aren't like that. Yo. Oh, but we are. Oh, we love our celebrity pastors which is a setup almost guaranteed to make spirituality a show. We love to be honored by society for our good deeds. And rarely, rarely do we take time to notice how those good deeds often are actually warping genuine biblical commands. I know it's true. Christian judgment is not the same as the judgment the Bible promises non-believers. That's true. But 
at the judgment seat of Christ, and I, I hate to confess this, but I'm convinced it's true. At the judgment seat of Christ, I will horribly face loss of reward because I focused on self, just like all the rest of the world around me does. Uh, here's a bizarro cartoon that actually handles it pretty well. Um, you were a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. <laughs> By contrast, those who focus on God receive delight. Go to verse 41. Wrap up the text. Verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Suddenly his disciples said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Always ask yourself why. Why is this story included here? Why, why include this story here? Mark had a selection of many things he could have put in. Why this one? Think of all the traps in this passage. Now, Jesus avoids them all wonderfully. He uses scripture, avoids them. But what about his followers? If we get ensnared, what is the only way out of a bind when the hunter won't let you go? You've got to cut yourself loose. Aaron Ralston is an American mountaineer, late April 2003. He was solo climbing in Canyonlands National Park in Utah when a massive boulder, that boulder right there, dislodged and trapped Ralston's right wrist for five days. He was stuck. After five days alone, he had no choice left. To save his life, Aaron broke his own radius and ulna, and then he amputated his right arm. He used a camelback tube as his tourniquet and a very dull multi-tool as his scalpel. And then he rappelled 65 feet down the rest of the way through the chute and walked about eight miles until he was rescued. He survived. He has even thrived. Aaron Ralston became the first person ever after that to solo every single one of Colorado's 14ers, 14,000-foot peaks in the winter. He, uh, he was speaking at a uh, Swiss economic forum in uh, May 2007 when he said something that I thought was very profound. He said, I did not lose my hand. I gained my life back. I gained my life back. Cut loose. Get rid of all the stuff that holds you down. Focus instead on Jesus. Receive delight from worship. He's God the Son. Worshiping him brings delight and freedom. That's what the widow is showing us. She is giving it all away. Anything that turns her eyes off of God. So, all right, look at the big picture. Look up here at the big picture of Mark's bookcase. Jesus is the Lord. He is God the Son. There are many snares, right, that try to erode that truth. But wise application of Scripture helps us avoid them all. If we do become trapped, we must give away whatever it is that holds us from focusing on Jesus. Right? Let's close with a few direct applications Please do not limit yourself to my ideas. You and the Holy Spirit will surely think of many, many more applications of this text. But here's a few ways I want to share with you that I have found that help me focus on Jesus and avoid the snares that try to diminish him in my life. First, think. Think it through. Whenever the doubts of Mr. Sensible try to get you to climb up in their trap, 
Uh, whenever nonsense draws you into the pilgrim's regress, stop and think. Dr. Peterson said, I understand C.S. Lewis's proposition. What he was referring to was Lewis's very great pithy summary, which actually was based on somebody a thousand years before Lewis, but it was the basic idea that Jesus can only, can only be one of three things. He's either the Lord he claimed to be, he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. Those are the only possibilities. When I find myself being, being taken away from focus on Jesus, when I'm struggling with, is any of this real? I need to think it through. And the only reasonable conclusion is he is the Lord. Number two, worship. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Um, when you work, I, I do this all the time, much to the chagrin of my coworkers. When you work, hum, hum a song about Jesus. Just put it, it's amazing how that, that helps me cut through the day and focus on what really matters, who really is the Lord. <laughs> Number three, talk. Speak honestly with somebody in your life group or in your Bible study. Share, share with them how politics or busyness or even theology is making you lose sight of Jesus. They're not going to judge you. They're on the same pilgrim road. But they'll listen, and for a lot of us, uh, talking helps us sharpen our thoughts. And number four, pray. Talk to God. Not as a public show, but a real private conversation. In fact, let, let's do it right now. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will focus on Jesus, that we will turn our eyes to him who matters. Right now, um, if you're a believer in Christ, I really encourage you to do this. Talk to God for a moment about whatever it might be that is keeping you from focusing on Jesus and enjoying who and what really matters. It, it's probably some sin pattern. It, it may even be something neutral or good that's being misused. Throw it into God's treasury. Give it up. Surrender it to the Lord. Cut it off. Give it to Him so you're free to worship and find delight. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, God loves you so much. Remember we read from 1 John 4? God sent, the landlord sent his son to die for you. He gave himself for you. And then, much to the Sadducees' dismay, he conquered death. He rose from the dead, just as was prophesied, just as he promised. And everyone who believes on him is in him, as John said. We are in him. We follow him in everlasting life. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. There's no show. That's not spirituality. It, it, it's just you and the God who loves you. Confess, I trust Jesus. I receive him as my Savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand, would you please, if you're here in the auditorium. If you're online, chat with your host, if you would, please. Good. Amen. Good for you. Father, I pray for all these believers, new and old, that we will indeed turn our eyes to Jesus. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. Look for
God's people said.